and I invite you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Make sure you have 2 Samuel and not 1 Samuel. 2 chapter, chapter, chapter 9, 2 Samuel. I'm going to ask a question. How many of you are familiar with Mephibosheth? I see a few hands go up. We have a lot of children in our church who have Bible names, but I don't think I've found Mephibosheth in any of them. Even the Getmans missed that one somehow. I don't know what happened there. Mephibosheth is going to help us understand what we mean by grace as used in the Bible. It's a word we use very frequently. We sing about it. Amazing grace, wonderful grace of Jesus. Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace. And the song we're going to sing momentarily, Marvelous Grace of Our Loving Lord. If I were to ask you what grace is, probably most of you would give an answer something like this, unmerited favor. And that's a good response. That's a good answer. It's a benevolent act by God toward us which we do not deserve. God's gift of unmerited favor to sinners. But how can we understand grace better? We kind of have an intellectual understanding of what it is. We sing about it, we talk about it, we read about it. But I think we need to get this concept deeper into our hearts, deeper into our souls. And one way is to consider Bible stories that illustrate it. And the Bible's full of these. But we're going to look at one in the Old Testament here in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And hopefully this will help us understand what grace is in a very fresh way. Let me read the first five verses at this point. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amil, at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Mekir, the son of Emil, at Lo Debar. We can imagine that one day King David was walking through his palace, perhaps out on a balcony, doing some thinking, and he thought back to the days of his friendship with Jonathan. Jonathan was one of the sons of King Saul. And both Saul and Jonathan had been killed in a battle at the end of 1 Samuel 31. We read that. But he's thinking about the good old days and the strong covenant that he had made with Jonathan to never forget him, to bless not only Jonathan when he was alive, but to bless his family to come, his descendants. So he thought, you know, I think I need to do something there. If there's anybody left of the house of Saul, they'd pretty much been destroyed. But after all that David had suffered under King Saul, you would think he would not be interested in doing that at all, Jonathan or no Jonathan. After all, Saul caused continued grief for David. However, after thinking about this, he, uh, he said, I need to find out about this. And so he calls his servant Ziba. Theologically, grace begins 
with God himself, represented by David in this account. Ephesians 1, 4a, Paul speaks about the things that we have, all the spiritual blessings we have in Christ, but begins with him. Before the world was created, we were born. David set, Lord set his favor upon us as sinners. Grace begins in the heart of God. We must never forget that point. Ziba is called in, and uh, he does acknowledge that he was a servant in the house of Saul, and he knows where there still is a son of Jonathan living. And of course, David expresses interest to that, especially when he learned that this son was crippled in his feet. Now, in Old Testament times, to be crippled was considered a sign of divine displeasure. Even in New Testament times, that attitude was around. For example, in John chapter 9, uh, we read that, that uh, the disciples said about a blind man, they said, was this man, uh, is he blind because of something he did or something his parents did? And Jesus said, neither, <laughs> but that God might show his, uh, reveal himself to you. So where was he? Well, he asks, where, where is this man? And he says, well, he's over in uh, the area of Gilead. Now, Gilead, if you have an idea of the map of Judea, uh, here comes, here's, the, here's the land of Judea, the southern part of Palestine. Here's the Jordan River coming down here. Gilead's way over to the east in a very desert wilderness area, someplace called Lodabar, which means nothing, nothingness, a wilderness area. And there is where the son of Jonathan had been living in obscurity for some time, probably one of his mother's relations. We're not sure of that. So David finds out where he is at. Grace begins with the initiative of a sovereign God, even as God called Abram out of Ur, even as he met with Jacob at Bethel, even as he met with Moses in the deserts of Midian, and even when he confronted Saul, not King Saul, but Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. Here's the son of Jonathan living in an isolated, lonely desert, far removed from the promised land. Surely, spiritually, a picture of most of our world today. Spiritually speaking, lost in darkness, in wasteland, not knowing the Lord at all. An additional thought here, by the way. If this covenant that had been made with, with uh, David and Jonathan, two human beings, was so strong that even to this day David is remembering it, what about the covenant that God has made? We call it the covenant of grace. God in his mercy and love has reached down to sinners like us and revealed himself to us. So grace begins then with the Lord, even as in the story it began with David contemplating his friendship with Jonathan and wanted to do something to help any survivor, and he finds out about this one son out in Gilead, of all places. So having learned that, what was David to do? We could expect that he simply would ignore the thought. Because as I said earlier, Saul, King Saul, did nothing but bring grief to David over and over and over again. There was lots of enmity between the two families. And David could just say, that, that's over with. 
I want nothing more to do with the house of Saul. And then, after all, what worth was King David, this man out there in the desert? Did not David have all kinds of wise, helpful advisors around him in the palace? Certainly this one person could do nothing for a royal king like that. He would only be a dead weight to what David was trying to do to lead his people there in Judea. So what did David do? Quite remarkable. He didn't just receive the information from Ziba and let it go at that. But he continued to do something about it. And so we deal in the second place with where grace goes. Let me read for you verses 5 through 8. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore you to all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? First of all, we notice that David took action. He gave, brought his servants in. He said, I want you to go out to Lodabar in Gilead. I want you to bring that man back to me. Now, this man, of course, was in a crippled condition. So when David's men got there, first of all, we might expect that if he wasn't crippled, he'd try to run away. Mephibosheth had to be filled with fear and anxiety that King David, of all people, was asking him to come back there to his palace. What might David do to him? Well, he had no choice in the matter because his soldiers, undoubtedly, picked him up bodily, and they brought him all the way from Gilead, all the way back to Jerusalem. In obedience to what King David had said. Isn't this where grace goes? To the place where sinners are. To the place where we are. If you're a believer here this morning, to the place where God confronted you, whether you're a young child, a teenager, or later in your adult life. In John 6, 44, Jesus says that the Father draws those to him. No man can come to, to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's the power of God. The power of David was reaching into Gilead, this desolate, dry place, bringing Mephibosheth all the way over to Jerusalem. The Lord reaches down to the sinner and works in his heart and gives him a new nature. We call that the regeneration or the new birth, enabling him then as God brings him along to grow in his faith and see Jesus and who Jesus is, the Savior, the Lord, and he brings them all into his palace. Don't let this amazing truth flee from your hearts. Somehow, you've got to get a hold of it 
in a better way I need to do also. We know it intellectually. We sing about it. We can say, give the answer, unmerited favor of God. But do we understand, if you're a believer, what God has done for you in bringing you as lost sinner to himself and giving you eternal life? Perhaps you can't express it in words. You're not much of a wordsmith. Perhaps you, your personality is such that you just can't show excitement about anything. You're sort of withdrawn. But at least in the depths of your heart, your soul, and your mind, you have to think about the grace of God to you, an undeserved sinner. It's in verse 6 that finally we learn his name, Mephibosheth. If you go back to chapter 4, verse 4, you'll find out what happened. He was just a little tyke. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, that is, that they had died, been killed in battle. So look what his nurse did. His nurse took him up and fled. So her idea was, we need to get away from here. They're going to be after Mephibosheth. I need to protect him. So she started running away with the child, but look what happened. As she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. This poor little boy grew up unable to walk. As noted a moment ago, Mephibosheth had to be very fearful coming into the palace in the presence of the king. Wouldn't he have found it hard to believe that, would, that, that David would allow him a cripple to be accepted in his palace, and yet here he was. We can imagine the moment when David's men brought him in and said, the king will be with you momentarily. What thoughts were going through his mind? What's the king going to do? Is he going to take revenge on me because of what my grandfather did? He had to be filled with all kinds of fear. Surely it was time for David to give payback. Instead, what does David do? This is how I envision it. He comes in. And Mephibosheth is shaking away. And he looks at him and he says, Mephibosheth. I'm sure he said it in a very tender, kind way. And at least for a moment, this son of Jonathan was relieved just by the name. If that's where Mephibosheth found himself, right there, in the palace, in the presence of the king. Here he was, lame, unsightly, nothing to give the king, and again, fearing that David might even put him to death. Most probably, David and Mephibosheth had never met before, until now. So for the first time, Mephibosheth is looking at the face of the one who his grandfather had tried to kill over and over again. The king says, Mephibosheth. Next week, I believe Pastor Dustin is going to preach on the incident of Zacchaeus. You remember when Jesus stopped under the tree? What did he say? Zacchaeus! Called him by name. Where Mary Magdalene was in the garden on that first Easter Sunday. And she didn't recognize the risen Jesus. She thought he was the gardener. 
until he said, Mary. When Saul of Tarsus was on the road to Damascus, as I referred to a moment ago, the Lord comes to him and says, Saul, Saul. And when you were brought to Christ, at that point where you realized you were a sinner, put your trust in the Lord, in effect, the Lord came to you and called you by your name. You, an individual, and me as an individual. Well, Mephibosheth had to be overwhelmed by this situation. And so we read he falls on his face, he pays homage, and all he can just say there at the end of verse 6, I am your servant. Here I am. Nothing more I can bring, nothing more I can do, except serve you in whatever way you might want you to do that. Let's go back to uh, Gilead for a moment. What if David had given instruction to his soldiers? I mean, you get there, ask him if he has a pair of crutches. If he has a pair of crutches, encourage him to use those crutches and try to get it to Jerusalem as quickly as he can. How ridiculous. Did David give Mephibosheth the opportunity to decide whether or not to accept his invitation? There's King David saying, I'm inviting you to my palace. Well, I don't know whether I want to do that or not. I've got other things to do. I'm more busy. I've got activities over here. I don't want to leave home. David's servants gave him no choice. They picked him up, brought him, drew him to Jerusalem. Grace responds to the demands of the gospel. The gospel never comes and says, here it is, take it or leave it. The Lord comes and says, I demand, trust in me, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. It shows sinners who they are by the Holy Spirit that brought into the presence of God. And there, what do they find? Grace is greater than their sins. Many of you are familiar with Romans 6.23, one of the most well-known verses in the Bible. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Justice has to do with wages. If God were to pay us according to our wages, according to our work, according to what we do, there's nothing, only judgment, only justice. But the gift of God, by His grace, is eternal life through Jesus. Take note of how David treats him. He treated Mephibosheth with respect, with compassion, with kindness, with assurance and generosity. Now David occasionally failed his people. We looked at him as a type of Jesus, and we know many things about King David aren't very good, but there are many things that are. As I said, no conditions were expressed. Okay, Mephibosheth, now that you're here, if you do this or do that, or if you keep your part in the bargain, I'll do my part in the bargain. Rather, we see what he does. He does some wonderful things. He grants unconditionally to Mephibosheth all the land of Saul, his grandfather, that previously had been forfeited to David. And a lasting place at David's table. Undoubtedly, Mephibosheth must have wondered, did he hear right? 
The king is going to give me all the land of my grandfather, and I also have a place at his table in the palace? What's his response in verse 8? What is your servant you shall regard for a dead dog such as I? That's how he looks at himself, a dead dog. We're reminded of John Newton's phrase, one of his hymns. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? I don't know if there are many sinners that think of themselves spiritually as dead dogs and worms. That's how God looks at the sinner, in the self, worthless, under his judgment. Grace comes bringing about humility and self-abasement. The sinner has nothing to offer Jesus. He or she is utterly worth a worthless wretch, a lost spiritual pauper. However, grace not only brings us down, but also lifts us up in a wonderful way. Thankfully, grace doesn't just begin something. It just doesn't bring it to a certain point. Then the Lord says, okay, I've done my part. Now it's up to you. But that leads us to the third point of our message this morning, where grace continues. Let me read to you verses 9 through 13 of 2 Samuel 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. These verses are remarkable compared to what we've just looked at. Here's this lost guy out in Gilead, Brought to the king, king in effect pardons him. He's not going to take any revenge on him. But then he doesn't say, "Well, uh, Mephibosheth, it's been nice having you here. Uh, we have a sack of lunch for you on your way. We'll take my servants, take you back home." No, he says, "I'm going to promise you two things. First of all, all the lands, and apparently Saul had extensive property, was still left over, and Ziba." was his servant who had been probably taking care of that land. And it was very good land, very productive, fruitful land. He said, I'm giving that to you. You can have that. Wow. And they'll take care of it for you, but you won't have to go out there and do the work. You just get the benefit of the proceeds. Oh, king, thank you so much. I don't know. Wait, wait that's not all. That's not it. You mean there's more? Yes. You are welcome at my table for the rest of your life. Now, eating at the king's table is not like we think of it nowadays where uh, 
a teenage boy comes running in three times a day to enjoy the meals his mom makes, and he's off doing his thing. Just not eating meals. It's really a place of honor, an honor position. He would be a member of the royal family. This meant he would be in the know about what was going on in the kingdom and have his opportunity to express himself about that. Quite a thing. And this will continue for the rest of his life. The Lord has not left his people to fend for themselves, as I mentioned a moment ago. Because we cannot do grace. Don't leave here this morning thinking you go out and do it. Only God can do that. Only God can give it. Yet, such grace is always needed by us every day, the rest of our lives. He continually reminds us that we have work to do, responsibilities. I'm sure Mephibosheth had different responsibilities there in the palace. And so in a very special way, David welcomed him to his table, even as we are welcomed to the Lord's table. I'm not thinking so much of communion, although that's a good symbol of it, but simply being in the presence of the Lord as part of his family. What an amazing, remarkable thing God has accomplished in the work of Jesus Christ, his son. Mephibosheth didn't deserve that, did he? He certainly didn't earn it. David granted it to him. And why was David so gracious? We're told he did it for the sake of Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father, with whom David had entered this covenant. And because of the son of Saul, Jonathan, David acted this way. Our Heavenly Father acted with grace because of his son, what his son did. The covenant made with his son, which his people are brought into, in his relationship with him. God commended his love toward us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now notice how the chapter ends in kind of a strange way. Last words. Now he was lame in both his feet. Haven't we already been told that? Back in chapter 4, verse 4, he was crippled. We're told that earlier, I think, in verse number 3. Why does the writer of 2 Samuel 9 add this phrase? I think the answer is that in speaking once more about Mephibosheth's lameness and thereby his constant need for David's care, so the contrast is set forth in what Mephibosheth was and what he now now is. Oh, he's still lame, but he's now in the palace of the king, part of the family of David. A Sunday school teacher was met after a lesson on 2 Samuel 9, and he came to the teacher, and he walked with a crutch. His one leg was twisted and short, but his face was aglow. And he said, teacher, do you know what I especially like about this story? that when people came to see Mephibosheth, they never saw his lame feet. They were covered by the table. 
The emphasis was not on his lameness, but upon who he was. In Jesus Christ, all of our spiritual deformities are out of sight by the work of Jesus. They're all forgiven. In our sanctification, we seek to work and magnify the things of the fruit of the Spirit before the world. God neither restores us by His grace so we can go scot-free and do whatever we want to, nor does He leave us to reform ourselves. So in this chapter, we have found grace illustrated as free favor unwarranted, unmerited by its recipient, attracting by nothing praiseworthy in the object. So grace is the opposite of justice. We get our due. With grace, we get what we don't deserve. I close with these three brief quotations. Theologian Wayne Grudem, Grace is God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. Dr. Louis Burkhoff, theologian, Grace is God's free, sovereign, undeserved favor of love to a man in a state of sin and guilt which manifests itself in forgiveness of sin and deliverance from its penalty. And radio uh, commentator Charles Wintall, Grace is what God does for mankind, which we do not deserve, which we cannot earn, which we will never be able to repay. Do you know the grace of God in your hearts as God reached down to you the marvelous grace of our loving Lord? Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace to us that indeed while we were yet sinners you reached down and found us and delivered us from our situation, our lostness, our darkness, and brought us to understand the light of Jesus Christ, your Savior, our Savior and our Lord. May we leave here this morning and through this week, despite the problems and difficulties of life, may deep within our hearts we know that we are in your family and that you love and care for us. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.